Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. Today, walk with me through your gateway where in-depth stock analysis happens in a very special way. We'll be walking with a man who has built a business around sharing his investment expertise. He has meticulously crafted 10 investment positions, analyzing multiple charts, and we will present it all in one single conversation. Our conversation is going to be based on his guide to the 10 best Singapore dividend stocks to buy for 2024. Listen, this ultimate guide is only going to be out next week. So we're thrilled that Willie Kang, dividend titan, has shared his draft with us. Willie, thank you for being with us here this morning. Very good morning, Michelle. It's good to be here on the show again. (laughs) We are thrilled because maybe people out there haven't thought of investing in an asset like Recruiter or they haven't thought that they could even get into a safe haven for less than a dollar or that they could, besides buying watches from this retail giant, they could buy a piece of this luxury retail giant. So we're thrilled with these ideas that you're sharing with us, Willie. Uh, First up, can you give us an idea of what went through your selection process? What do you go through when you spend so many months with your uh, picking your best stock ideas for beginner investors like us? Yeah, Michelle. So the thing about this ultimate guide is really because uh, it's coming to the Chinese New Year, the festive season, and every year I will have um, my relatives, my uncle and auntie, they'll ask me, hey, really, what's good to buy, you know? And I I was stumped, not because I don't have any ideas, but I have so many ideas in my head. I just don't know which one to share. And this really culminated in picking something, uh, writing about what is easy for them to understand Mm. about investing, especially for investors, you know, who wants to get their feet wet. Maybe they might not be a serious investor. They might be someone who's casual. Mm -hmm. Maybe they just want to buy something where they can just hold on, you know, for the long term. And also maybe they're familiar with because they have bought their products or their services. So it's not something where I want to talk about, you know, in terms of Singapore REITs, for example, but more where it's on a day-to-day basis, you can actually find some some of these ideas. If you sort of just um, pay closer attention, you know, to what we buy or use in our daily lives. I love it. So basically, you are joining the dots, making it easy for beginner investors to see the links between investing, which can be a very abstract concept, and what's all around them, whether it's a supermarket or a place where they buy watches or something that powers the internet. This is meant for beginner investors, this guy? Yes, exactly. And also, at, more importantly, also to make some money out of uh, some of these ideas, you know. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's you... not, just about, not just about reading an academic paper, but it also it has to be applicable and practical as well. So is this your ang pao for us? <laughs> well, you just gave me a good idea to put the color of the cover page, Michelle. <laughs> Glad to help. Anytime. Now, when it comes to dividend stocks, we're going to look at three of your picks in just a while. What are some misconceptions people often have about dividend stocks? Yeah, I mean, that's a great one, Michelle. Uh, to put it at the front, misconception is just looking at a dividend yield itself. So this is something which I cannot emphasize over and over again. Mm. Um, more often than not, people tend to look at the high dividend yield of a stock and they assume that it's a very attractive buy and they'll just jump into it only to re- realize that many of these stocks, they typically don't have uh, very strong fundamentals, meaning that they don't um, have very strong cash flow or profits 
or they might actually borrow quite a fair bit of money from the banks in order to sustain the dividends. And that's why they do have that high dividend yield. So that's one of the biggest misconceptions. And the second one is, of course, you know, to really diversify some of these stocks because for dividend stocks, it's a bit different from your technology growth stocks where things move really fast and you cannot assume that this dividend stock can give you the multi-bagger which you want. So that's one important thing which I need to drive across. Dividend stocks tend to be just driving. You know, it's like driving a car and you're sort of driving that uh, Honda Civic and you're not driving a Ferrari. And that's one thing which is important when it comes to dividend investing. I've always loved point A to point B cars. So let's get this drive going. Let's start with uh, pick number one. And they are a recruiter with a very unassuming name, HR Net Group. Are they a small company? Are they mid? Mm, so this is a mid-size company. Market cap is $720 million. So HRNet is one of my top picks in my ultimate guide. And it's very easy to look past this company, Michelle, because um, they, are, they are very unassuming in their name. Um, they are not very attractive in terms of their name, but they have been around since the early 1990s, starting from a four-man team, and they've grown to about thousands of employees. So even Kamasic Holdings took a stake in them when they sort of went listing or before they actually got listed. So they are in the recruitment business. If you think about it, most of their revenues are in Singapore. Uh, they've expanded across to North Asia. And one thing which I like about HRNet, they are an asset-like business. So they don't own um, huge brick and mortar stores. You know, they don't have to commit to very expensive rental. So what they do is they have a very strong team of flexible staffing or contract staff. And really, this is the mother's milk of HRNet growing and expanding their business. Because if you think about it, a lot of their cash flow, a lot of their recurring business comes from contract staff which is very different from many of the bigger recruitment houses. Now, contract staff for HRNet, what they typically do is, for instance, if a company like a bank decides to hire a contractor from HRNet Group, what the bank does is that it pays the full salary to the contract staff plus an additional fee to HRNet Group for hiring the contractor. So this makes it very asset-like for HRNet because HRNet don't have to fork up to pay for these contractors. It's only the clients uh, have to pay for them. And HRNet can just simply grow this contract stuff headcount by headcount in order to grow their profits. So one thing which I like about HRNet is almost half of their revenue comes from this flexible staffing. Mm -hmm. And it has sort of grown over the last few years. If you think about it, most of Singapore's employment these days, you know, they are also moving towards more of an asset-like employment headcount, meaning that they are doing more contracts, which means that it's a big driver for HRNet and they are really right smack in this tailwind when it comes to contract staffing. And I think compared to the other bigger boys, they're sort of carved the niche for themselves in the contract staff business. Okay, so they did IPO and today they're trading below their IPO price of 90 cents. Has anything gone wrong there? Yeah, that's the thing. Analysts just doesn't like it. The market is just not happy with HRNet for a couple of reasons because HRNet is primarily focused in Singapore. And if you see for the last couple of years, how the labor market has sort of changed, um, that's one point. Another thing is that analysts are also expecting sort of a weaker economy for Singapore, uh, largely because of how interest rates have moved in the US. As a result, I think generally analysts which are covering the stock or the market which are following the stock just doesn't like the stock stock performance or just doesn't like the outlook of it. But if you dig a little deeper for HRNet, while their share price have fallen, um, if you look at the past cycles, 
when it comes to economic crisis and the resiliency of such businesses, HRNet tends to recover pretty fast from down cycles, for example, and they tend to be more resilient in terms of economic crisis, largely because as companies tend to downsize in a slow, slow economy, companies also need manpower, they need staff. So what they do is they sort of convert some of their permanent positions into temporary contract positions. And that's where HRNet really shines. Because if you look during the 2008-2009 crisis, mm-hmm. while a lot of big recruitment houses like Robert Walters, for example, saw their profits shrink. But at the same time, you have HRNet not having experienced that severe crisis like its US peers. In fact, during the global financial crisis, it has continued to grow its profit or may at least maintain its revenues and profits. And then it saw its revenues and profits climb after the recovery of the global financial crisis. As an investor, what are you looking for when you look at the balance sheet or business model of a recruitment company? There are many names out there. This one has a great reputation. But what are you looking for? Number one, I'm looking for the amount of liquid assets. That means cash in their, on their balance sheet. And the reason why, like any other companies, is that this allows them to tie through any down cycles in the, in the economy. So, for example, HRNet doesn't have any debt at all of borrowing, so they don't have to rely on a bank to run their business. Mm -hmm. They have over $260 million of cash. That's more than half of their total assets, which means that anytime they can continue to pay dividends to investors, anytime they can take this money to deploy and grow, uh, not just in Singapore, but also overseas as well. So in fact, um, HRNet has extended its presence uh, not just in Southeast Asia but also in North Asia which includes Taiwan, um, China which is in the, some of the tier 1 cities like Shanghai and even Hong Kong as well. So these are the big places or what you call the metropolitan cities which require you know, um, highly skilled labour where HRNet has sort of an advantage or sort of has a, a niche in when it comes to um, contract staffing. Okay, I'm going to put my journalist hat on here because I always ask at least one critical question. So because it's heavily dependent on the labor market, apart from that, because it's a recruitment firm, what other risks are associated with a stock like this? So for, so this is something which I always think about when it comes to mid-cap companies or slightly smaller stocks in the Singapore market. Um, I used to read The Intelligent Investor uh, by Benjamin Graham, and he did mention in one of his texts called secondary companies. So secondary companies are slightly smaller companies. They might be more profitable. They might have a faster growth, but they might be what I call caper type of companies. That means when it comes to crisis, right, they might not be able to survive the vicissitudes of market cycles just because of smaller, they are being smaller companies. And HRNet is also one of the smaller companies which could actually suffer that risk if, let's say, if there's a huge economic cycle or economic crisis which really comes in. So that's one big risk uh, which we have to pay attention to slightly smaller companies here. That's one. The mm-hmm. second thing, of course, is in terms of its share price performance. Uh, because if you take our hat, if, our, if you put on our sort of a tree, trader's hat, um, we would see that smaller, mid-sized companies, they tend to actually trade more volatile. That means they have more whipsaw movements when it comes to share price performance. So looking at this kind of businesses or companies or buying to some of these stocks, we have to be able to be comfortable um, with their share price going up on one day and then going down the next. So that's 
that's the second thing. The last thing, of course, uh, because of its relatively small size, mm-hmm. being able to expand overseas could be a disadvantage, especially for local companies, uh, because contract staff happens to be a very localized business. It's a lot like properties, for example. It's a lot like banking, where you need to have the local knowledge, the local advantage in order to actually grow. So if HRNet decides to put in money and grow aggressively, they may not get the kind of strong returns on investment as opposed to, say, focusing their resources in the Singapore market itself. Okay, so we've been looking at our first pick, HRNet Group, current price 73 cents, target price according to Refinitiv Data, 85 cents. Let's move on to our next pick. And that is the luxury retail giant, the Hourglass. Okay, let's look at Hourglass. Really interesting. How has this stock performed in a period of high inflation where maybe people are buying less luxury? Why has it made it to your list? So even though there's high inflation and people are also scared of spending, on the contrary, um, when it comes to luxury goods, people just cannot get their hands enough of their hands on some of these luxury goods. I mean, it's not just watches, but even for bags. Um, the price of um, luxury bags, for example, has actually soared through the roof during the pandemic when everyone wants to buy them. Mm-hmm. Uh, same goes for luxury for luxury watches as well. So if you see um, what the uh, management of the Hourglass has mentioned, mm. um, they did mention that back in 2022, Swiss watch exports actually grew. 11.6% to an all-time high of 23 billion Swiss francs. And that's based on some of the brand partners, uh, brand partners watch, which were reported record sales. And that also sort of um, impacted in a positive way for the hourglass. So inflation, even though inflation goes up, one thing which uh, we can learn from this particular figure is that high inflation also means that companies like the hourglass are able to actually increase the pricing power of brands because the watches which they sell are basically very high end, mid tier to high end watches, which are able to increase their prices because of their strong heritage brand for you know for decades after decades so in fact if you see for the trends like this if you look at the hourglass their revenue has sort of grew quite significantly i mean if you look at their balance sheet over the last 10 years from uh, 2016 for example revenues grew from 700 million dollars all the way to 1.1 billion dollars even their profits also have grew uh, quite a substantial bit from just 53 million dollars in 2016 and it more than tripled in 2023 last year to 174 million dollars and during covid itself um, both their revenues and profits have continued to climb as well this was despite um, high interest rates and high inflation which also means that when it comes to an interest a change in an interest rate environment where it moves from close to zero percent over the last 15 years where interest rates have sort of moved up right now, Hourglass isn't really afraid of high interest rates. In mm. fact, they are able to actually price higher in terms of their goods because they're not afraid um, in terms of you know inflation getting more expensive, their costs are more expensive. If operating costs goes higher, then management can just say, look, that's going to raise the prices of our watches. And people will still come in because um, what they're also riding on is the tailwind of a very strong Asian consumer con- consumption or rising middle class in Asia itself where people tend to want to 
spend more, as the standard of living in Asia goes up, people want to sort of, you know, pamper themselves with more comfortable items, more material goods, for example. In fact, um, McKinsey said in their report that Asia consumers will take up at least $5 trillion worth of consumption, including luxury timepieces. So this also includes your watches, which the hourglass sells. It's like walking to a different world when you talk about uh, luxury goods, the luxury goods business. You know, there are different rules that play out here, I think, that govern this business. Really, really interesting. You say this has been a consistent dividend player. It's paid and grown from two cents per share all the way to eight cents per share. How optimistic are you that it still has room to grow its net profit margins? So in terms of its net profit margin, it has also been growing. The the thing about dividend stocks, like I've mentioned earlier, Michelle, that in terms of growth, we may not see very huge growth Mm. um, for dividend stocks like the hourglass. But what's interesting is that People just doesn't like the stock at this moment because if you see since last year, the stock was down at least 10-15%. Um, it has dropped to about $1.60 per share. And this was really resulting from people talking about the world opening up. People might not be buying. They have this fear of people not spending more, especially when it comes at a time where people are avoiding China like a hairy eight-legged spider or creature. And a lot of the Asian consumption is also coming from China itself. And that has sort of scared um, the market, especially for the hourglass. But if you think about it, if you look at the last five to ten years, how they have grown, they might not have the best growth in like a technology stock. Mm -hmm. But what they do have is a very recurring, very steady form of revenue and profits. And this allows them to consistently pay those dividends. I mean, if you see where their share price are trading, at about five plus um, percent, five plus percent dividend yields per share, I think this is a pretty good deal for a smaller company like the the Hourglass, and especially for the Singapore investor. If you are sick and tired of hearing about REITs or Singapore banks, then perhaps something different, you know, in a different sector. Uh, could be appealing. Okay, and now let us move to a company that sort of is underground. Few people know about what it does. Uh, Maybe some do, but I think many may not know about the work of Netlink, NBN, Trust. Why do you say that this is a stock that could be a safe haven for investors? Yeah, I mean, Michelle, this is really like a bond, right? Because if you think about it, the wires outside your house, the fiber cables are actually mostly done by Netlink Trust. And they all they have a monopoly in the Singapore residential home. In fact, the company provides fiber cables to one and a half million residential homes in Singapore. So that's almost close to half of the market share in Singapore uh, and also 52,000 non-residential premises, which includes your commercial properties as well. So it is a lot like a passive income because there's no reason why residents or people like myself would cut off the fiber cables and want to switch. I, I mean, we don't even know what is the next competitor for Netlink Trust. They do have that monopoly. Mm-hmm. And it, it's also very interesting because Netlink Trust once upon a time was an unwanted trial by Singtel. If you take a few years back in 27, uh, 2017, um, Netlink Trust was actually spun off because of anti-competition regulations because Netlink Trust um, was owned by Singtel Group and they, the Singapore government don't want to have this, anti, this monopolistic uh, stranglehold by Singtel because there were also other telco players. So in itself, this forces the market to sort of sell off the stock. And since then, if you see, the stock has been traded very stably. Mm. Um, you know, you can see it has been trading for about less, between around a dollar, and now it has traded below a dollar. 
And if you see, it has really that bond-like characteristics because every year, uh, every month, we continue to pay through netting trust on the usage of the fiber cables. Um, we are always being charged and there's no way to communicate this, especially if, you know, we are also connected to the internet. You know, there's no such thing as not having internet or Wi-Fi at home. Yeah. So netting trust really comes, uh, you know, it's really like a bond-like kind of business. Mm. And that's why I say, you know, to me, I feel that it's a safe haven which you could of get it for below a dollar a share at least for this point which means that it's about a six percent dividend yield uh if you see for the last couple of years it has been paying steady dividends which is a testament of its uh safetyness in fact during covid when everyone was stuck at home mm-hmm. netting trust continued to pay that steady dividend in fact it has also been growing its dividends over time as well so it not only was able to fight against the higher inflation rate which we have been seeing. Hmm. But at the same time, it continues to grow its revenues and and its profits. If you think about it, access to the internet is sort of like the new public good, isn't it? So I understand that Netlinks Trust revenues are regulated by the Singapore government. Can you help us understand what regulated revenue means and what investors need to take from that or understand about it? So simply put, um, every couple of years, Netlink Trust would have to actually put their pricing under review by the Singapore government. So this pricing review is something which a lot of investors of Netlink Trust tends to watch closely because their revenues are after all regulated, which means that the government controls how much Netlink Trust can actually price their revenue. So a lot of um, people, they tend to be fearful of this because what if the Singapore government decides to you know, one day drop the pricing very heavily. I mean, so far it hasn't happened, but in the most recent pricing review, um, you will see that Netlink Trust has actually lowered its pricing for each headcount in Singapore, which people are concerned. But on the flip side, if you see the volume which it serves to its customers in Singapore has also grown. So while the individual pricing has fallen, but the overall volume has sort of increased, which also means that the total revenue, the total profits uh, could also continue to grow. So on one hand, this could be a risk for Netlink Trust. But on the other hand, this kind of risk is something which personally I would accept it, largely because if you see for Netlink Trust, there isn't really any other bigger competitors out there in the market in Singapore for Netlink Trust. So they dominate about one third of Singapore's residential fiber network. And this is something which I do take comfort in. I don't think that, you know, unlike the telcos where there are heavy competition, Netlink Trust sort of has that uh, king of the hill kind of status in Singapore. Let me ask you one more question. Um, What risks are we looking with Netlink, if any? Mm. So Netlink Trust is a business trust. So if you compare to, say, a REIT which owns properties, properties, the value of the properties tend to appreciate over time. But Netlink Trust, because they own your fiber cables, your underground man ducts, your manholes, your big, huge copper cables. The problem is that these assets tend to depreciate over time, which means that Netlink Trust, some of the profits which they keep or the cash which they hold in their balance sheet, some after a while, after a couple of years, maybe 10 years, 15 years down, they need to actually take some of this cash out from their bank account yeah. to actually replace some of these older assets, which means that a part of the growth for Netlink Trust might be sort of um, short-changed might have to be slowed down just so because they need to replace some of these assets. So that's one of the these, these um, concerns or risks if you're looking to invest in net interest, which means that if I would take on the lens of a long-term investor, mm-hmm. I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't put it as a growth kind of stock, mm-hmm. but rather I would look at it more as a stable income payer, which can pay me steady dividends 
year after year and over time itself. Okay, Willie. So Netlink currently holds $732 million worth of debt. How much of a concern is this? How should investors be reading this when they look at it on the uh, balance sheet? Yeah, I mean, if you look at Netlink Trust, right, even though that they have $700 million worth of debt, um, this is quite a small amount versus the total assets which they have. Because if you see Netlink Trust last year, they own about $4 billion worth of total assets, mostly parked in their fiber cable assets, their copper wire. So if you walk along the pedestrian, you know, if you see the man duct holes, those are owned by Netlink Trust. And one thing about Netlink Trust is, Initially, I was also concerned with their debt. But if you look closely, what Netlink Trust did a couple of years back was they were able to hedge on their interest rate before interest rates actually went up. So they were pretty lucky. And what they did was they, number one, refinanced most of their debt back in 2021 um, at a lower interest rate. And they converted their floating interest rate into a fixed interest rate, which means that whether interest rates go up or interest rates go down, mm-hmm. Netlink Trust continues to pay this payment at a fixed rate every single year. So while their revenues and profits can increase, but they only need to actually pay this fixed amount steadily, this fixed amount of interest costs steadily over time. So I'm not too concerned with the debt which they have mm-hmm. since they do own a much larger asset base. And at the same time, their interest cost is still very affordable to pay. I mean, if you look at um, their average borrowing cost, it's less than 2% today versus Singapore REITs where their average borrowing cost uh, would have actually gone up close to 3%. So this is something which um, I do take comfort in Netlink Trust. Revenues have grown 65% since their IPO. Shares of Netlink trade just below $0.90 per share, 11% gain from its IPO price. Now, is this something, again, because it's a dividend stock, we shouldn't worry too much about? Yeah, so if you think about it, I would look at Netlink Trust as really like a bond or fixed income because they have been growing their dividends over time. And this dividends is funded from the, um, the profits, the healthy profits which they generate. So they don't have to borrow in order to pay the distributions. What they do is a lot of these dividends are coming from their profits itself. So there is a certain level of comfort and safety when it comes to investing in Netlink Trust. Mm, Investing is far from simple, but thank you for helping us understand a lot of your thinking and uh, sharing your great guide with us, Willie. Have a great day ahead. Thank you, Michelle. Before acting on the information on MoneyFM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.